The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So hi, this is Ashley. I'm Annie. And we are Feminist Book Club content contributors talking about women's sports and specifically media and activism. Hi, Annie. How are you? I'm doing well, Ashley. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So tell us about your relationship to watching sports and how you were drawn to it and what you're interested in. So I am a huge sports player. I've always played sports in my life. And for me, being queer and like having a community of women who were focused on something sports related or something specific was always like my safe haven and my safe place. So for me, it's very personal in terms of like watching a community of women achieve something together. Not that we're not always doing that all the time, or I say we, but I'm kind of like in this non-binary spectrum. Um, But so I think just experiencing it and knowing how deep that wonderful partnership is and how deep that companionship is and then seeing it play out and then watching all of my heroes basically like take a stand and be like be activists and be um, outspoken is something that has kept me watching sports and being invested in the communities Um, and just knowing everything that that women athletes are up against and yet like they're putting on these amazing performances so that's kind of my journey what about you for me, it's just been having an interest in women in women's basketball and just the tri- the triumphs that have been there. Watching. Did you play? No, I, I played no sports in school. <laughs> All of my sort of uh, pseudo athleticism was uh, into adulthood. I barely got through PE, mostly just women's basketball and then getting into soccer and then different things like that. Um, And then this, of course, is a continued conversation um, from with Renee and I when we talked about women's sports. And now we're just continuing something new. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that you guys had recorded that. And I was so excited because I am constantly talking about women's sports and I'm a big I just joined the Angel City fandom yes Um, so I'm a huge fan and I think even like it's perfectly emblematic of the capability of women's sports which is that like that's the doggy but yes uh, Angel City uh, football club is in Los Angeles it's now a women's soccer team backed by a number of famous people including Jessica Chastain and Natalie Portman And it's one of the premier national uh, women's leagues um, here in Los Angeles. And it's nice that we have another team. Yes, I am. The whole model of it, I think, is a beautiful collaboration, too. Like the whole thing from inception to execution is a, a statement about women's sports and the capability of women's sports. 
And who are some of your heroes or people that you look up to um, who have been sharing their activism, their advocacy? Obviously, Megan Rapinoe for me is a huge one. And she has been had her finger on the pulse for so long and been like, this is my life. She's been on the front line of Title IX and like equal pay for equal play in the women's sports world, even if that's just for the World Cup and the women's national team. Um, So she's kind of like my biggest, most outspoken hero. And she's so authentic, I think, is something that I really look up to. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. What about you? I, of course, yes, look to Megan Rapinoe, particularly a few years ago when they were playing in the World Cup. And um, she spoke about, you know, not wanting to visit the White or was she wasn't going to visit the White House. And that's sort of how her name grew, grew into prominence, along with being a phenomenal soccer player. I watched them play Columbia as they're once again um, in the contention for the, the World Cup. Uh, Simone Biles is someone who has been phenomenal in sharing her mental health. Naomi Osaka as well. I love seeing people just take a stand on the public stage where there is so much ridicule and vitriol, but they're still just like, this is what I'm doing. And that even though these are athletes performing on the grandest of stages, they're still human beings and they're treating themselves as human beings. And that's so profound. There, of course, are a number of people, but those are the three that stick to mind. I really think Naomi Osaka is doing something so I am we're like witnessing someone doing something absolutely incredible for so many reasons but one of them is like when has someone ever been like I will not perform today because Mm -hmm. my mental health is in trouble and therefore like I am a person first and a player second and I you know in some ways when I think about sports I think about sports culture I am very overwhelmed by our notion of like high performing athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very overwhelmed by the idea that um, someone is meant to show up, use their body, like their whole mm-hmm. life is in performance and is in achievement. And like the way they know they're successful is when they win. And there's something about that is um, obviously it probably is helpful in terms of setting goals, but I think it's very unhuman to me. It's very like difficult to see someone growing into a healthy, full developed person when that's kind of their mentality. And so watching someone who has the opportunity to be in these high profile scenarios and advocate for their own health. And of course, like when you're an advocate or you're an ally or you're someone who's outspoken, your first job is to advocate for yourself, because Mm -hmm. if you're not doing that, who are you going to support and stand for? So I think that she's, and she's getting a lot of negative feedback for it and she's getting a lot of pushback, but she is absolutely 100% noting when and where the pressures are being too much. And I think ultimately, like, not only will she have a very long, successful career because of that, but she will also have a very long, fulfilling life because of that. So I think she's doing absolutely the most, some of the most brave thing you can possibly do about something incredibly vulnerable. So I, Naomi Osaka just blows me away constantly. She has a documentary on Netflix. I don't remember the name. My brain always escapes me when I'm recording a podcast. Um, (laughs) But she has a documentary on Netflix and it's probably four episodes. And it's just a phenomenal look at what happens when you achieve a certain level of fame. And this was after she won 
the U.S. Open, the one against Serena Williams that really catapulted her to a level of fame that she has achieved. But it was looking at her after that. So like the endorsements coming in and the bigger responsibility that came because she's Naomi Osaka now. So I I recommend that and I'll um, put it in the show notes as a something to view. Um, but yes, I think, you know, as much as there is negative feedback and vitriol and the backlash or whatever, there are a lot of people who support her. And eventually people will meet you when they recognize like, oh, you were actually doing something that sets the tone for other athletes or famous people to say like, okay, yes, mental health is important to prioritize. And even just your everyday person, it's important that you know, even as we look to famous people for whatever reason that um, we get to have some some kind of uh, reflection because mm-hmm. fame is it, it's a it's a tool. It's, you know, something that um, people look towards. So Naomi setting an example, people will meet her in the long run. I agree with that. I think as much as there's pushback, there's a lot of people who are maybe seeing a role model in terms of being able to speak up about your own needs and saying, okay, like winning, it's the same with any, I mean, sports or money or anything where it's like getting more and more and more is not helpful. And so she is kind of saying, I'm satisfied. My, my goal is to be the best athlete that I can, not the winningest, not the, and how rare is that to hear someone say, my goal is to focus on being like a well, a good person who's well, um, as opposed to being like, my goal is to win 30 (laughs) grand slams. So I I think she's incredible. And I think she is doing it from a very, her activism is so personal too, which Mm -hmm. I really admire. I think, you know, we talk about Megan Rapinoe and I think she does such amazing vocalizing and, and she's like written books and she's on the front edge of writing open letters and and leading the NWSL, especially as we talk about pay and, yes. and, you know, a lot of talk about like the world cup setting in Canada and how that was really inequitable. But then Naomi Osaka is sharing her activism through her notes on her phone, which mm-hmm. I think is like, so there's something so pure about that because yeah. for her, activism is not always, I think she does speak out a lot about certain things and she's very vocal about current events, but for her, it's so intimate that I'm like, this is the most effective activism is she's setting her example. She wrote a note on her phone because she was feeling a certain way. And then she shared it with us, which is um, in a way, like kind of what writers and activists and, and book sharers do, right? Is they're sharing something really intimate and they're making it accessible to other people. And so in that way, like, I just think she's accomplishing so much with so little, like, obviously it's not so little, but it's, it's this, um, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. you can decide whether that's what's going to work. And ultimately it is like an amazing example that she's setting. You shared that, um, you had some thoughts about Serena Williams when she played against Naomi Osaka. What were your thoughts about that? And how do you think it's changed since we were a few years removed? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, so when we talk about celebrity or we talk about, you know, like um, star athletes, you know, um, they're also subject to all of the social criticisms that we face every day. So, um, she is a, she's obviously this 
amazing athlete, but she's also a black woman. And so she deals with the backlash against black women on a heightened level because Mm -hmm. she's not just living her daily life. She's on center stage. So people will write, draw like horribly racist cartoons because that is a social experience that she's dealing with on a daily level that we're not me, but other people are dealing with every day is, um, you know, the angry black woman stereotype and how that's dangerous to people somehow. Um, and then you see it on center stage and it's, for me, that was a real eye-opening moment of, I mean, it, not that it was new information, but watching her get chastised for, um, her match against Naomi Osaka for like, you know, I don't, I don't think it was even, I think she like challenged a call or she maybe got angry for a second. And then all of a sudden she was getting penalties. And then all of a sudden some people were choosing to document it in a, like she overreacted. She, Mm -hmm. she should be kicked off. This is inappropriate behavior. And then you look at John McEnroe and you look at Novak Djokovic and you look at, um, this guy named Kyrgos who was playing Wimbledon the other day, who was just like swearing at the ref or the umpire for a good, like 10 minutes. And I think um, it just really holds a mirror to society at large. It's just a really big mirror because of how prominent she is. So her getting labeled as like an overly aggressive or angry person because she got reactive for us for a moment out of all of the times that, you know, that she's been facing horrible racism in the sport because tennis is such a traditionally white sport so like you know that she's been putting up with so much and then ultimately has one maybe one lapse and that means that she's not allowed to be she has to be perfect you know the implication of her getting in trouble for maybe having one one complaint is that she can never mess up which I think is a huge part of women's sports I think they feel like they have to be and like Naomi Osaka I feel like they have to be performing and they have to be perfect because we're so willing to kind of yank out what they have from under them. I don't know if you've been experiencing that as you watch like women's basketball and stuff like that, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's this notion, as you were saying that, you know, we have society where black women and a variety of people are dealing with, with what they do because of who they are. But then most people take celebrities and famous people as like throwing tomatoes at them. And so when you have someone like Serena Williams, who throughout her career has had vitriol after vitriol because she is she is the best at what she does. And she set a precedent where Coco Goff and Sloan Stevens and Naomi Osaka can be black girls on the tennis court on a global stage that doesn't come with oh, just everyone greeting her with flowers. It comes with them giving her thorns. So yeah, it's just, I I think in that match, she told the umpire, like, I'm not lying. So she was basically advocating for herself, like, I'm not lying. And then it just turned into this, well, she's just entitled and she's this and she's that. And I remember that cartoon in the Australian newspaper. Um, so again, reaching a global stage. And it's just deeply unfortunate, especially as she continues to play the sport. But I I would assume that that's something that she's not, um, she's, it's not something that you get used to, but she's aware of it. I also think that you subject your, your 
unfortunately you've been, you're being subjected to all of those small stereotypes in such a more explosive and big way. Like she has to deal with so much. I mean, not that every black woman doesn't experience those on a daily basis, but she's really dealing with it from like a newspaper standpoint, like someone actually targeting her in a Mm -hmm. critique. So I just think, you know, that her, her steeliness is unrivaled, you know, like, you know, that this is on a level that is, she's having to absorb so much and, and internalize so much um, just because we know what it feels like on a small scale. We know what it feels like on a social level. And then to put that on a world stage level, I, I know that she is probably um, just finding a way to process that and also remain like the best athlete in the world. And I, I just think she's, it's so admirable and it has, I think it has payoff. I think that, like you said, like the result of someone doing that is that she's breaking the ground for someone like Naomi Osaka to come through. Um, you sent me a video about um, someone named Brianna, I think. Yes, um, yes. And I, that was uh, a really eye-opening video because, um, sorry, do you have your her last name? I'm, um, Scurry. Scurry, Bri- Brianna Scurry from the women's national team, probably in the 96 league, like the, the 99 circuit. Yes, the, yes. That big team that was like the first, yes. you know. Uh, Brandy Chastain taking her shirt off. And for me, I think of soccer as a pretty diverse sport now. Um, and globally, it's like a very diverse sport. But it it occurs to me watching this video that that's actually a very recent history. Mm-hmm. So not only was she a, a Black goalkeeper, but she's also gay. And so um, she talks about just feeling, uh, you know, the pressures of both of those identities at once. Yes, she's uh, promoting her memoir, and it was a a clip from PBS, and she was sharing that, you know, when that team won, and of course, that game is still referenced um, decades later, and how she wasn't put on the money track the way Mia Hamm was, and Um, She had a severe injury that left her without being able to play the game she had to retire. And so for her to be able to recollect and share her story now, so many years removed, um, I appreciate that she gets the space to share her story. But it, you know, discrepancies even amidst the Women's National League is still prominent. You know, we were talking about Megan Rapinoe. Um, being a part of the group that advocated for equal pay, but then we're also seeing it within um, the Women's Soccer League. So it's a lot that we have to reform, um, but having those conversations now paves the way for the next generation. Exactly. And I think um, getting equal pay for the World Cup matches, not it, the the victory that that is is um, hard to even comprehend because of how large the pay discrepancy was. Yes, we're talking about men's teams showing up and getting you know some millions of dollars, and women's teams winning the World Cup and not meeting as much as men's team get for entry. And then we talk about like spectatorship. I my favorite sports season is NCAA softball season, mm. and um, it is one of my favorite things to watch the athleticism is incredible it's so intimate because it's not a big large scale sports uh sport and then the statistic came out where the the viewership for the women's softball championship was higher than the than the men's world series for baseball um for the for the college level world series of course and 
it's it's just one of those things where there's they're, they're still facing the locker rooms are not complete with uh this is bat, women's basketball looking at the one of my jaw dropping moments in women's sports history is when the locker rooms at the Olympics were like basically a Sheridan gym, like one bench. And then the men's national, the the men's basketball team was like this just beautiful row of Olympic racks. Um, So, you know, they're not only are they advocating and they're activists and they're working hard, they're doing it. Um, with the fewest resources um they're doing it with the least support and so i am just i think you have to remember that they're not just playing their sport they're also they're living their their gender and they're living their inequities right they're performing twice basically yes so as we close this conversation are there any lingering thoughts that you have um, anything that you have noticed? Um, I don't know. Do you all, I'll think about that, but, but if you have uh, any lingering thoughts that you've been thinking about, I'd love to hear them. I just wanted to give an update about Brittany Griner. Um, she has sent a letter to president Biden advocating for herself and pleading for him to intervene. Um, she, her case, she had a, uh, a hearing on the first. So that was last Friday. And, um, you know, her wife has continued to, Sherelle has continued to advocate for her. And it's looking like she has another six months in prison. And the sentence is looking at 10 years. So it's just, for Brittany to have shared that letter, um, I do hope that something uh, intervention happens and Simone Biles and Megan Rapino are receiving presidential medals of freedom or the medal of freedom. And people are hoping that they speak with um, President Biden about it. So that's the update there. I would be very surprised if that was not one of their primary purposes of going to the White House because they have a, both of them have a history of lifting other people up and um, not leaving anyone behind, which I think is just one of the most beautiful parts about women's sports and women's athletes is um, whether it's on a team, because you're dealing with 11 other people in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they are not leaving others behind. Megan Rapino is a white, uh, white lesbian, uh, or I should say queer woman, but I think she's a lesbian and um, is still kneeling, you know, at games and is still, taking some responsibility for um, uh, what Colin Kaepernick started a long time ago. So I, I think that the, the women's athletes are models of people who are constantly outspoken and those are team sports. Then there's Serena Williams who felt <laughs> she was so mad at the, at the match against Naomi Osaka, but she whispered right in Naomi Osaka's ear and was like, they're not mad at you. Like you earn this, you are, you're an athlete and like, you're the top contender. I'm so proud of you. They're right. not, they're not booing you. And so there's kind of this uh, outside of yourself where people are extending um, through. And so I think Simone Biles and, and Megan Rapinoe going to the white house, I believe that there's going to be something that comes out of that. 
Well, Annie, I could talk with you <laughs> seriously all day about this. I do hope that we have another conversation in the time being, but thank you so much for your insight um, and sharing your heroes and your perspective. And um, may the conversation continue. Can't wait. Uh, yeah, this is, we need to keep our, our eyes on the, on the prize here in New Year's on the ground. I'd like to invite you to join the National Women's Studies Association this November 10th through the 13th at the Hilton Minneapolis for the annual conference. The 2022 NWSA conference theme, Killing Rage, Resistance on the Other Side of Freedom, seeks to open up conversations about freedom and justice, salvation and sacrifice, convenience and controversy, and whose life and vote matters. At our conference, you can connect with other activists, feminists, and scholars from across the globe. This year, the keynote speakers are feminist leaders Angela Davis and Anita Hill and many more. Don't know what NWSA is? The NWSA is the world's largest group of feminists, activists, and scholars dedicated to advancing women and women's studies across the globe. So are you a feminist? Join NWSA at nwsa.org to become a member and to see more details on this year's conference. Again, that's nwsa.org or follow them on Twitter at NWSA or on Instagram at NWSA underscore IG. We hope to see you this November here in Minneapolis. Hello listeners, my name is Alana Amor Colvin. I am a content contributor with Feminist Book Club. Today, I will be talking with Marilyn Lepore, a screenwriter, director, activist, and juggler extraordinaire based in Denver. Marin is the co-founder of the all-female-led production company, Sad Girl Productions. Her work often explores and celebrates the intersectionalities between women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community, often through the lens of comedy and or romance. Her web series, I Put the Buy and Bitter, is a great example of her work and one of her most notable works. Marin's work has been screened at festivals across the country, including Series Fest, Classicon, and Denver Comic Con. Recent press interviews include 303 Magazine, Tag Magazine, and Voyage Denver. How are you doing today? I am so good. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this and letting me talk to you. Okay, are you ready for our first question? Let's do it. All right. What is feminism to you? To me, feminism is making sure that women have the same opportunities and rights and access to men, you know, regardless of gender, race, or background, et cetera. Obviously, you have to be intersectional within your feminism. So it's about like supporting and uplifting other women whenever we can, whether that's like socially, economically, culturally, politically, like all of those things. Um, obviously you can like talk forever and ever about like exact definitions, but Kira Sedwick has this really amazing quote that I think about a lot, but she said, as a woman in power, if you're not reaching your hand down and pulling up other women, then you're not doing your job. And that's kind of how I see like my work and my life. Wow. It's giving Virginia Woolf a room of one's own with like the last 30 seconds. I love that. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work? Yes, you already covered some of this in my intro, which was so awesome. But I am a writer, filmmaker, and activist currently based out of Denver. Um, I grew up in Colorado. I lived in Beijing for six years throughout my childhood from like age 
10 to 16 because myself and my sisters are all adopted from China. And so my parents decided to move us over there so we could learn more about like our culture and history and heritage, which was awesome. My parents have always been super chill about like the whole adoption thing. But anyways, lived in China and then moved back to Colorado in high school. And that's where I fell in love with filmmaking. Um, And so after high school, I decided to go to film school, went to film school for five years, graduated from film school. Now I'm here in Denver working at a film production company. And I also do like freelance work on the side just with my own personal stuff. But yeah, I've done like every aspect of filmmaking there is from like writing, directing, producing, editing, production design, being on set, all of that. And I've also worked in like all types of mediums within film. So I've done like short films and web series and music videos, documentaries. I'm working on a feature film now. Yeah. And a lot of my work is like you said about like women and people of color and the LGBT community. Last year, I made a documentary series about like the LGBTQ community in Denver. And I like got to interview like activists and artists within like the Denver community, which was awesome. I've done music videos for Esme Patterson, who is like an LGBTQ artist here. And I I made them like super gay and that was fun. Um, And like you said, my web series, it's about is called I Put the Buy-In Bitter, and it's about these three gay teenagers in high school. And we had like a majority women and LGBT cast and crew, and all of the leads were women of color, and the cast in general was like pretty diverse. So that was like kind of my passion project for like two years. But that show is really about like normalizing being gay while being young because it's like a fun and lighthearted kids show. And I feel like growing up, I didn't have any of those. Like gay characters were very often like sexualized or it was like super dramatic and tragic and sad so I just wanted to make something like funny and cute that kids could watch and then recently in my writing I've been exploring more things like my Chinese American culture and living in Beijing and yeah it's all through like comedy. I'm sending hearts your way. I admire you. A legend. So you talked a little bit about the intersectionalities that your work covers and with that obviously within those communities there's a lot of activism work that plays a part in that. How did your work with activism intertwine or overlap with your work as a writer and a director, if at all? Because I know you do some work, not necessarily so much within the film industry, but also like helping in volunteering with adopted youth in Denver. And how do you create a balance between those two? Yeah, I think I think activism and filmmaking are definitely intertwined within my work. Just because like, whether I like it or not, I feel like aspects of my identity are inherently political just because I'm gay, I'm a woman, I'm a person of color. Like these are all like very like, these are communities that have historically been marginalized and left out of like representation and stuff. So a lot of the things I write about and explore are about these people. And that could be seen as a political statement, even if it's not. But yeah, even like working on set, like, I feel like I'm very, very passionate about like representation behind the camera as well as on screen. Like even if you have like a super diverse show, if it's filtered through the lens of all cis white male writers and directors and DPs, like that's not going to be an authentic product just because it is told through like the people that it's not about. So like, for example, with I Put the Buy and Bitter, we had like women and like a bunch of like the lead creative positions, but even like that of like hiring women and hiring like people of color and all that I don't necessarily see that as activism like I I just see that as like being a decent person and wanting to give like everyone opportunities and it's also just like 
creatively, it's also like being a good director because you're having so many different views on set and it's like beneficial to you and everyone to have a diverse group of people like contributing to something, especially in art. Yeah, outside of like film, activism has still been somewhat film related. Like I was a board member for a nonprofit organization here called Women in Film and Media. And that was just kind of like, it was for women in film and media, just like giving opportunities to women and just kind of like trying to diversify the film industry. Um, When I was at my school, I was part of the Equity Diversity Inclusion Task Force, which was kind of about like decolonizing our curriculum and talking about how we can make the school more diverse and inclusive. But even that was kind of through the lens of like a film student. And I was bringing like that perspective to the group. But yeah, outside of film, I have done some awesome stuff. Like I've been working with this wonderful organization in Colorado called Adopteen, which is, it's like, it's an organization for adopted youth and they put on like summer camps and community building events. And it's also all through the adoption agency that my sisters and I were adopted through. So that's how I knew them. But my involvement with them actually started off as filmmaking because I like took pictures and filmed their summer camp. But then from there, I found other opportunities to like actually work hands-on like in front of like with the kids instead of just like behind a camera. So like the past year, I've been like a mentor for like some of the kids and they like adopt tween program, which has been so fun and validating and cute. Like I love working with kids, especially like adopted kids. Cause like, I know what it's like to like grow up like an Asian adopt kid and like not have that community. So yeah, it's like super fun. That's so great. I didn't know that your relationship with them started due to film. Yeah. And then we also did like a bunch of like, it was like filmmaking and it was also like gay stuff because the person who like runs it, she knew I was like part of the LGBTQ community and they were doing like some pride events. So, and we were friends. So she hit me up and she was like, Hey, you're gay. Do you want to speak on like these gay panels that we're doing? And I was like, hell yeah. So I like hosted like some panels and I was on like some talks and that was awesome. But yeah, that's kind of how it started. The fact that that connection has lasted the majority of your life is so special. I think I think that's really great that you were able to, it's sort of a full circle thing. Backtracking a little bit into what you were saying prior to the volunteer work, you mentioned how it is so easy for members within the marginalized community for them to do things that are normal for white people or more specifically normal for white men to do but because of how they identify, it's automatically a political statement. Or it won't necessarily be intended as an act of activism or protest, but because of the identities involved, it is automatically like a rebellious call to power to the people. (laughs) As a lesbian woman of color, how do you celebrate this identity and your background without allowing the film industry more specifically to sort of typecast you as only that or label all of your work as just a, uh, like a, how do you avoid your work becoming some form of tokenism? I have been thinking about this so much recently, just because like, like you said, everything I've done has been for one of those like marginalized communities. So it's very easy to label it as like, I put the buy and bitter as like a gay web series when it's really just like about these teenagers in high school who happen to be gay. And I feel like it's easier said than done, but I've kind of realized that you 
kind of just have to ignore the industry and outsiders views and just like do what you want because they're going to label you and typecast you no matter what. And so I'm just gonna, if they're gonna do that anyways, like I'm just gonna like write stories I'm interested in and like write about characters and communities that I'm passionate about. And if that makes me a gay filmmaker instead of a filmmaker in their eyes, there's nothing I can really do about that. Like if people choose to use a reductive lens of interpretation on my work. Like I can't really control that. And it also just means that my work isn't meant for them. Like if, like I tend to write for like very niche audiences. Like I put the buy and bitter was specifically for gay teenagers. Like that's kind of like who I wanted to watch the show. And if like older straight people can't relate to that, then like that's, that's not who it was for anyways. Like I'm fine with that. And so if only a niche little audience understands what I want to do, then that's cool. And I'm not going to like let fear of being labeled make me censor myself or stop writing gay things and stop writing like what I want to do. I don't know. Yeah. Do you feel like the marketing that surrounds works created by marginalized communities, do you find that to be limiting to your work or do you find that as an opportunity? I feel like it's definitely both. And it depends on like what audience is consuming your work in a way. Like it's like marketing myself as a gay filmmaker or as like a person of color filmmaker, like that's really helpful for gay people who want to find authentic gay content. Like that was really helpful for I Put the Buy and Bitter. I was like, we, we did market it as such. We're like, hey, this is like made by like a gay cast, a gay crew, a gay blah, 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 blah. Like it's going to be like authentic. And so that's what drew a lot of gay people to watch it just because they knew we had that authenticity of like the people making it. But then on like, like, like we were just talking about, like on the outside point of view, people who aren't in those communities will kind of like label you and like put you in that box. So it's kind of like you win some and you lose some. It's definitely helpful because you can like find your own audience, but at the same time, like having that external expectation from like other people can be difficult. And I don't know, at the, at the beginning of my career, when I like first started making content, it was something that like kind of bothered me at first because I felt like I had like the weight of the gay community like on my shoulders and I had to like be perfect and represent everyone. And then I was so scared of being like criticized because I don't, oh my God, what if the representation isn't perfect? What if I'm like blah, 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 blah. But that it's like non-marginalized creators aren't held to the same standard. Even in I Put the Buy in Bitter, we had some comments that like, you don't have any trans characters and it's kind of like having diversity and being inclusive doesn't mean you have to you have to represent every single identity and like every single type of person and everyone like in the LGBTQ community like it's really just a show about like these few high schoolers and if that's all we were talking about then that's kind of fine yeah I think sometimes it's a matter of like telling the story that you want to tell without censoring yourself and like trying to fit within like these boxes that like everyone expects you to be in. You mentioned feeling the pressure of having to like not necessarily hold up the gay community but like be a representative of the gay community trademark. Do you often feel obligated to uphold that image or even the image of being a woman of color given sort of like the culture of America right now, it is it is expected upon people of marginalized communities to really wear that on their chest. Is that something you deal with? 
Yeah, I definitely did at first. I feel like recently I've kind of calmed myself down. I've, I've like unlearned those like unrealistic expectations because I think it's not so much of like when people want you to like check all these boxes, I kind of think of it as like, it's not so much of a checklist rather than like, I'm just exploring what I want to explore and people shouldn't have to write something just because you have to write it. Like you should write what interests you and something that's going to be authentic because that's what's going to make a good story. That's what's going to make like good writing that people want to like engage with. Yeah. I don't know. It's something I'm like definitely thinking about and dealing with now. And yeah, it's just, it's just kind of (laughs) weird. What is some advice and it can either be regarding this conversation or just something that you wished someone had sort of shared with you or expressed to you as a marginalized person creating art or content more so in present day. This is going to sound so cheesy, but kind of just like do your thing and do what you want and try not to care too much about like the external pressures because you're not going to make everyone happy no matter what. Like no ma- people are always going to see your stuff as like political. And so if you can, in a way, if you can like dissociate yourself from that, I feel like your work is going to be more authentic to like who you are and what you want to do. Because like the first like few years of my career making this stuff, I was so focused on being like politically correct and like representing these communities and like holding that like giant weight on my back and it was like mentally it was exhausting and it was also like creatively draining because then your work isn't art it's just like it's not art it's just whatever I don't know I don't know the wording you know what I mean but yeah so I think putting yourself first and if there are like and if that does do good things for like representation and all that like that could be like second hand not that representation isn't important but you shouldn't like change everything about you and your work just to serve someone's like political goal and that's that on (laughs) this concludes our interview i have one more question for you what are some things you have coming up yes the most immediate thing is that i'm writing and directing an animated short film about two lesbian dinosaurs at the end of the world and it's kind of about like telling people you love them before it's too late, which is very cute and sweet. But we're animating that right now and hopefully it's gonna be done by the end of the year and then released next year. Um, I'm also writing a TV pilot about a little girl who has sleep paralysis and she goes on adventures with all of her like demon monster friends. So that's like a romance and a comedy and that's also animated. But yeah, just writing a lot and doing a lot. And yeah, you can find out more about like my work on my website. It's MarianLapore.com. I have all of my past projects and upcoming projects and all that. You can check it out. All of that will be in the show notes. Do you have any other places that you want listeners to find you or any socials? All of my socials are on my website. But yeah, I have an Instagram. It's Sad Girl Prods, um, a Facebook, Sad Girl Productions. Uh, YouTube is also Sad Girl Productions. You can find all three seasons of I Put the Buy and Bitter on there. You can watch it for free. You have all sorts of stuff. All right. In the show notes, links will be. Thank you so much for your time. I love you. I'm a Marin Stan. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was awesome and fun. 
thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature.